Thanks for jumping in, Caro. It's, um, it's pretty heavy reading, is it not? It's a bit hard sometimes at the end of the reading to go, thanks be to God. Is that not true? I think sometimes at the end of it we kind of go, wow, that was actually really heavy. Tonight we're going to speak on significant matters, and they're not necessarily easy, but they are very worthwhile for us as a church. I want to remind you at the start two things. Number one, um, there's a Q&A after this, so I'll give you an opportunity to ask me questions. So as we've gone through, and um, Ali heard the sermon this morning, she's got two lined up for me already, I think she said, so okay, there'll be things that you might want to ask afterwards, please take advantage of that to, uh, to do that. Alternatively, if you don't want to ask me in public, we're having a meal after the service, just come and chat with me over the, over the meal after the service and I'd be very happy to talk with you. How about I pray and ask that God would help us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word preserved for us. Help us now to have open hearts and open ears. Father, make us alive to what you would teach us tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a quick identification game at the start. Does anyone know who this man here is? Does anyone know? Sorry? Harvey, yes. Harvey who? Harvey Weinstein, not Harvey Norman. No, kids, no, not Harvey Norman. Uh, This is a man who's been in the media because he's a man who's exercised extraordinary amounts of power. Uh, He has positional power as a boss. He has cultural power as a movie maker, and he's a pretty large bloke, so he probably has some physical power as well. And in every way, he's uh, misused this power on vulnerable women, and he is now facing very significant charges in the U.S., It's interesting, you you come to church, and tonight, we're going to be talking about power, we're talking about sex, we're going to be talking about deceit, we're talking about scandal, and we're going to be talking about murder. My goodness, did I come to the right church service, you're wondering to yourself. These are the things that drive our world media and that drive the news, and I, I think As I said a number of times across the day, I think our news has become almost indistinguishable from our entertainment. Just all blends into one seamless thing, and most of it is about this stuff. But it's not new. A while ago, God, our God, gave some commandments to his people. We find them in Exodus chapter 20. Does anyone know the Ten Commandments? Can anyone say to me, ah, Ten Commandment, that jumps into their head right now? Yep. Frogs. That's the ten plagues, buddy. That's a really good response. Good listening. I'm glad I was with you because I knew what you were saying. Otherwise, that's a bit weird. But good work, mate. Good thinking. Really good thinking. Does anyone know the Ten Commandments? Can anyone give me a Ten Commandment? Yes. Do not murder. That is the one. Whenever I talk to Australians and I say, do you know the Ten Commandments? This is the one that they come up with. Uh, so do not, if you know more, that's good, hands down. Do not murder, okay? Do not murder. Then we've got, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. After you've stolen, you've got to tell a lie to cover it up, don't you? And you stole because you covet. Covet is the thing where you want somebody else's stuff. So there's some Ten Commandments. They've been around for a long time. We're talking three and a half thousand years. But what I want you to see is that these commandments are as relevant and alive today as they could possibly be. 
They're alive because this is a sermon about sin. It's a sermon about sin. It's also, because it's a sermon about sin, a sermon about you and me. We live in a world that is stained and marked by sin and it happens within you and I. In fact, if we were to say, where is sin's arena? Where does sin happen? Jesus has an interesting answer for us. Where does sin happen? Where does it come from? Some people are asking Jesus, that they're going, hey Jesus, your, your disciples aren't doing this hand-washing thing that everybody does in the Jewish religion. Uh, therefore, they're unclean. They're unclean because they don't wash their hands. Incidentally, wash your hands. It's very good. But they were saying you're unclean because you're not doing it as part of your religion. Jesus doesn't muck around. Uh, in chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, Jesus puts them in their place. He says, are you still so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. If you'd ask, where's sin's arena? Where does sin come from? It comes from the human heart. And it's not just the physical organ, right? So we we could think, well, if I only got rid of my heart, if I had a heart transplant, maybe I'd be all right. But the heart here represents our place of longing and thinking and desiring. Out of the human heart comes sin. And I think, well, that's safe. My, My heart is locked inside my chest. No one else need be bothered by it. The problem with our heart and the sin that's in there is that it wants to get out. And our sin, our private sin, will express itself in the world. The private wants to become public when fully grown. And Jesus looks and he says, the problem starts in your heart, not with your hands. It starts with your heart and not with your hands. And so what I want you to do today with me as we look at this passage here is to look at sin's progression from David's heart out into the world around him. That's what we're going to see. We're going to use David as a case study in what happens with sin. So we're going to start. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 11. If you've got that there, it'd be great to have it open. I can't remember what page it was. Can someone call it out? No, it's too too, too quiet for me. 309, very helpful. Thank you. So we're in 2 Samuel Uh, chapter 11. And the first sin that we're going to look at is the one that we just spoke of. It starts with coveting. Coveting happens in the human heart first. So I want you to see what's happening. We're in 2 Samuel 11. I'm going to read verses 1 to 2. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. If we stop there, has David sinned at this point? I'm seeing a shaking head at the front and a nodding head. There's there's some discussion, okay? David potentially should have been out leading his army as the king. And so the fact that he's home on his roof 
almost means that he's probably neglecting his duty. There's some discussion backwards and forwards as to whether he's just got the nation humming along and so now he can outsource leadership to Joab. But the fact is, the passage suggests that he shouldn't be there because he should be out with the army. At any rate, he looks on the, he's wandering around at night, he looks from his roof and he sees a woman bathing. Has he sinned then? No. He's just looked. It's like you could say he saw a car in the car park. Has he sinned at that point? No, not necessarily. Coveting, however, coveting, however, is looking with intent. It's looking with intent. Have you heard of loitering with intent? Okay. Looking with intent is I'm not just looking to see, I'm looking with a scheme in my head. Do you see the difference? I'm not just looking to see, I'm looking with a scheme in my head. I, I, he is thinking to himself of something else, a next step. Now, if we, uh, if we go to the next slide, you can see the next sin that we're going to look at is what? Stealing. The next sin is stealing. And you'll see stealing happen in this story here. It goes from just looking to stealing. Have a look with me at verses 3 to 4a. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. The, the, the stealing bit, the stealing bit happens when David sends someone to find out who she is. What's the answer? She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. At that point, whose is she? Well, she's someone who is married, who's committed to this man, Uriah the Hittite, who incidentally on the side appears to be one of the famous fighting men of David. He's probably a trusted ally of David. And I speculate totally when I say it may be the reason that his house is so close to the palace that he can see the woman bathing on the roof because he's such a close ally of David's. So he sees, he looks with intent, and then he sends some messengers to get her. Now, it's important, I've said this right the way across today, it's really important that we understand when he says he sent someone to get her, she is not responsible. She is not responsible. He is the king of Israel. And whether he sent some nice men who are holding a bouquet of flowers to say, why don't you come up to the king's place, you need to know that it's an irresistible invitation. She can't say no. It is entirely his fault. Are we clear on that? And that's the power that's behind the whole Harvey Weinstein thing. So much power, you can't say no. Stealing is taking what is others for your own. But this is more than stealing. It's more than stealing. It's this next sin. It's actually adultery. And adultery is what David did when he slept with her. He took her to be his own as a husband and wife, but without being husband and wife. And so adultery is taking another's love for your own. And it must be said, God doesn't like it. What comes next? What, what comes up? You've done something wrong. What's the next thing? Someone said it. You're right, Owen. Who's this bloke? Pinocchio. Okay. We, we know Pinocchio. And um, I, I, was, I was listening to some radio a while ago, and they got people to call in with bad things that your parents did to you when you were a kid. And one of them came in and they said, oh, look, um, 
My mum said that whenever we lie, um, our noses turn red. And so I thought I'd fool mum, and so every time I went to her and I was going to tell a lie, I'd cover my nose. Hilarious, right? Absolutely hilarious, because nose didn't change colour, obviously, but you're betra- betraying the fact that you're now lying to your mum. Anyway, by the, by, by the point. Lying is what we do when we want to cover up the wrong that we've done, and almost inevitably, one sin necessitates another. One sin necessitates another. And that's exactly what we see happening in this long, drawn-out section with Uriah the Hittite. So what does David do? I won't read it to you. I'll tell you the story. What does David do? He says, okay, we've got to cover this up. What are we going to do? I'll get Uriah back from the battle. And he comes back home and he goes, give me the weather report on the battle. And he goes, yeah, everything's going fine. He says, all right, well, why don't you have some lunch with me? And they tuck into some food. And then David says, well, hmm, I guess it's the afternoon. Maybe you should go home. Why don't you go home? What's the anticipation when he goes home to his wife after he's been away for a long battle? Fill in the blank. Kid's present. You've got it. That's what he's anticipating. Except Uriah doesn't go with the program. It says that he sleeps on the ground instead of going home. He stays at the king's palace. And David's like, what on earth are you doing? He asks him in verse 10, why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go home and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as I live, I won't do such a thing. So Uriah says, I'm not going to go home and enjoy myself because the Lord's people are out in tents on the battlefield. Who does he condemn as he says this? Come on, tell me. He condemns David, doesn't he? As he says, I'm going to be righteous. God's people are out there. I'm not going to look after myself. Who's been looking after himself? David. And so David goes, look, I'll fix you, bud. Why don't you stay around for another day? Feeds him up. And it actually says in the text, he got him drunk. He got him drunk and he said, okay, mate, out you go. Go home to your wife. But here's the thing. He didn't do it. He didn't go home. He slept at the palace. And what I want you to see is that drunk Uriah is more righteous than sober David. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And so what what is this? What is this lying It's a story in place of or to distort the truth. What David was trying to do was to get Uriah to go home with his wife so that the baby would be explained. So that the baby would be explained. We see uh, in verse 5 that Bathsheba has sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. The baby is his and he needs to cover it up. His response is something truly despicable. What David does next is murder. And how he does it is appalling. Have a look with me at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So the plan's a simple one. What we're going to have is a sad military accident, except David will have concocted it. Put him at the front, When the fighting's fierce, everyone take a step back. Oh no, Uriah died. What a shame. Joab is too smart to leave just one man to die. And so actually a number of men fall around Uriah and are killed to cover up David's sin. The body count for David's sin keeps 
rising. Murder is choosing to end the life of another. In this case, it's even more despicable because what David does is he sends the death letter for Uriah with him. He has to carry it and hand it over to Joab. It's an absolute tragedy. So there's sin at work, growing, feeding on itself. How does sin work? If we were to do a dissection of sin, how would it work? Well, let me suggest that sin starts by tempting us. And it tempts us with a whisper of more. You could have that woman. You could have that woman. It blinds us. It blinds us to our blessings. Do you know how many wives David had? More than one. More than two. He had about five at this point. And so here's a woman on the roof and David, anyway, does he think about them? No. In fact, the next step of sin is it invites us to fixate on the forbidden, to fixate on the forbidden. And the best illustration I can give you of this is Adam and Eve in the garden. You know Adam and Eve? God said to them, you can have every tree in the garden except one. And you show that you're obeying me by not eating from this tree. And the devil comes and what does he whisper? Look, if you eat from that fruit, you'll become wiser than God. And so now, Where's their focus? It's on one tree. Their whole orientation now is narrowed to this one tree. They forget all the blessings of God and they're fixated on the one thing that they can't have. What's the next step of sin? Sin gets us to exchange gratefulness for gratification. Instead of going, God, you give us this whole forest, now they go, I want that fruit. We exchange gratefulness for gratification. And sin offers us sugar, it offers us sugar, but gives only shame, secrecy, and slavery. And you know this, don't you, church? It offers us something sweet, but it only ever lies. It'll always sell us short. So how does sin work? Well, in the end, ultimately, sin makes us mortal enemies to God. It means that our sin means we should die. God says the punishment for sin is death, and so our sin makes us mortal enemies of God. So I want to ask, did David get away with it? Do you reckon? If we stop the story at the end of verse 27 of chapter 11, we almost think he did. Have a look at verse 27. So Uriah's dead. After the time of mourning was over... David had her, that's Bathsheba, brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. So it's all worked out well, hasn't it? Uh, Now there's a son. There's a, 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 a weeping war widow. And what's David done? Oh, well, allow me as the king to show mercy and compassion to this poor war widow. I'm going to bring her into my house. Oh, she's pregnant. I'm going to bring the son up as my own. Do you see how it looks like he's being righteous? And we could almost think, if we stop the story there, we could almost think that he got away with it. But have a look at the end of verse 27. It says this, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. See, often the problem we have when we read through the Old Testament is in this case, in yellow, you've got God's verdict, and the rest is an account, not an endorsement. What happens when we read through the Old Testament is we go, oh, that's in the Bible. Look, they... they They did all this stuff, and you think, I guess God likes all that stuff. 
But that's an account. It's not his verdict. And here we get God's verdict. It wasn't okay that David did any of that. God's verdict is explicit. It displeased the Lord. Now, God doesn't just stay displeased. He wants to communicate it with David. And so God calls on his main man, Nathan, who's his prophet. And if we see, Nathan will use this picture of a ewe lamb, a baby lamb. And I want to read this part of the story to you again because it's so powerful. The Lord sent Nathan to David in chapter 12, verse 1. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. I love it. It's just a story, right? They're just chewing the fat. They're probably just sitting on the same roof having a beverage. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. David goes, oh, that's quite interesting. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. Oh, he raised it and it grew up with him and his children. He shared its He shared his food, drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep. Did he have many? Or cattle? To prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I appointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your hands. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You see, what David's saying here is, you can see clearly. This is a precious object. This is is somebody. There's somebody precious. And what you have done is despicable. But I just think it's incredibly interesting that David still sees injustice. You see that? He's able to see injustice over there, even as he's consumed by his own sin. That's terrible. Now, incidentally, that's Twitter, isn't it? All right, that's a joke for people who are into social media. Okay, very good. What, what's going on here is we want to see what happens next. This sign is about a reversal, and it's exactly what we see in chapter 12, verse 13. Have a look with me. It's very short. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And he wasn't being trite. He wasn't joking about it. He didn't think it was funny. He's cut to the heart. He's heartbroken. He sees that what he has done has been despicable. And the finger that was pointing away to the bad man now condemns him. You are that man. And David gets it. And he repents. And repentance is a U-turn. It's turning you around back to God. It's saying, God, I have been running away from you. I've chosen selfishly. I come home. Repentance is a U-turn that we all need to make. And it's stunning what the Lord's prophet says next. 
David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Do you see here, I said, I said our sin makes us mortal, mortal enemies of God. And here you see the connection between sin and death. Your sin is forgiven. You're not going to die. There's an extraordinary grace here from the hand of God. Now, what happens if I knock one of these over? They all fall over. And when they're laid out beautifully, you have a lovely line, right? But you knock one of these ones over and there's going to be chaos. There's going to be chaotic consequences. That is sin, church. Chaotic consequences follow. They aren't all neat. You won't know what they are. Chaotic consequences will come. And that's exactly what we see in verses uh, 10 to 12 and 14 to 15. Now, therefore, Nathan says, The sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me, that's God, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. You did this in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And furthermore, he says tragically that the son that's been born to him, will die. I want you to see here, church, this is so important. There is gracious forgiveness from God and sin will wreak terrible consequences in the world. Do you see these things? There's forgiveness. That's brilliant. But it doesn't mean that sin magically stops wreaking havoc in the world. Do you see that? And so there are going to be terrible consequences. David, who'd heard wonderful promises about his future, now hears a tragic thorn will be in the side of his household. As we listen to this David story, I think we need to be aware of what I've called the ewe lamb effect. And you go, what's the ewe lamb effect? Maybe I need to Google that. I just made it up. Okay. What is the ewe lamb effect? The ewe lamb effect is this. There's the ewe lamb. The ewe lamb effect is, is what happened with King David, right? He got told the ewe lamb story, and what did he get? Fired up and angry about the makeup man. Here's the thing. You and I can hear about King David and get fired up about his folly, and we will miss the sin in our own lives. I want us to be careful of condemning David while giving ourselves a free pass. We have a set of values in our church. We'd love to see the people who are here, who love Jesus, to be growing as faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring apprentices to Jesus. And we have some questions that help fill out that value. So what does it mean to be enduring? Well, the questions ask, where are you weak and in danger of falling? Because here's the thing, church, to let you in a little secret. You and I are all weak and in danger of falling. Who knows you well enough to ask this question? Is there anyone in your life who knows you well enough to ask, where are you weak and in danger of falling? Apart from me, because I just did it. And who would you answer that question to? And then thirdly, we ask, who are you strengthening to run the race to the end? You see, I want to get there. I want to see Jesus face to face, and I want you to. And it's going to take a team effort. We need a toolbox to help us deal with this thing called sin. And this is how I'm going to finish tonight. The first thing that we need to know is how to get right with the living God. 
And there's some absolutely beautiful verses in the Bible. The one I chose is uh, this one that you probably know. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 is so interesting. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Tonight, if you know the slavery of sin, the secrecy of sin, but not the forgiveness of sin, you need to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to find full and free forgiveness by trusting by faith in him. You can be totally free of your sin tonight. Many of you will have started that journey, and I want to give you some tips. You've come to Jesus and said, please forgive me. I want to give you some tips on how we can live well together. The first thing is to think about how we use our free time. It says in Ecclesiastes 10.18, Through laziness the rafters sag, because of idle hands the house leaks. Well, our houses probably aren't going to leak anytime soon, but if you leave them long enough, they will. But the point is, when we've got nothing to do, often we do not good things. That was David's problem up on the roof, wasn't it? Yeah? And so what we need to think about is how we use our free time. Have you heard the turn of phrase, the devil finds work for idle hands? Have you heard that? If not, congratulations, welcome to the saying, it's quite good. Not biblical, but quite good. So I want us to think, what do we do when there's nothing to do? Let's see if we can find healthy habits that will help us. We need to think about our free time, and then we need to think about this next thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, all the twos, it says this, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, it's not just stop doing things, it's actually run away from things. So I want you to think about your free time, and I want you to think about your flee time. There are times that you need to run away from sin, and so we need to think about what do we need to stop doing, what series do we need to stop watching, what do we need to stop downloading, what do we need to stop using, what do we need to... You can fill in the blanks. You know your weakness. Will we flee from it? Next, I want you to see that our sanctification, our being made holy, is actually a team sport. There's a beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 3. It says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, there's actually a togetherness to this being on the journey to meet God, this enduring thing. And so I want you to say, it's not a solo sport. We need to be looking out for one another, and you can't do it on your own. So there's a together, we want to be looking out for one another. Which means, if I get real, you have to actually share something of yourself. And if you want to come here and look perfect, number one, I'll probably see through it. Number two, no one else here is perfect. It's so, it's so helpful. Can I just have a moment with you for a second? Do you realize how helpful that is? No, no one else here doesn't sin. So how about we help one another in the midst of our sin to turn to Jesus and keep trusting him? So we need to do it together and we need to do it apart. You actually need to be people who are getting into God's word. It says in Hebrews 3.15, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. I want you to be reading God's word. Do you know why? 
because I need you to be able to speak God's word into somebody else's life. And when you're reading it on your own, I want God to be able to speak to you and say, hey, do you see that you lamb? That's a terrible story, isn't it? Except it's about you. We need to be people of God's word. We need to practice repentance regularly. Uh, it says in uh, 1 John 1, 8 and following, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I think I've told you guys before, but I have a, a prayer app on my phone. And um, when I use it, which is not as often as I should, see, confession's good for the soul. Uh, when I've got, it's, it comes up with a little thing here that says, um, I need to confess my sins. And to help me, because confessing your sins, it's much better to be specific than general. Lord God, I'm sorry for stuff I did that was bad. What I do is I sit there and I, I've got these words on it. It says, think about money, sex, power, pride, greed, coveting, and deceit. And I read through that list and I go, God, show me where I've messed this up. I've got to tell you, there's no blank spaces. There's never a time where I go, well, that was easy. Flick, go to the next one. But when we confess specifically, we can know specifically that we're forgiven. And so I want to encourage you to be people who are quick to repent. And we want to do that regularly because of the great benefit that comes. In Romans 8.1, which is one of my favorite verses, it says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to confess that you might know the rest that comes from being assured that God's forgiven you. You can be forgiven. And you can tell the devil to stop whispering condemnation in your ear. It's all taken care of right here on the cross. Let me finish uh, with this plant. It's called the hyssop plant. It's used a number of times in the Bible and very specifically in Psalm 51, which David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. I want you to hear the, the background. In Egypt, God told his people, when it's time for the Passover, there were people who were going to die in Egypt, but God's people were not going to die because they would sacrifice a sheep in place of their firstborn. God says, take a hyssop plant, get the blood and paint the blood over the doorway of the house. And the angel of the Lord will pass over the house, hyssop and blood. When people had skin diseases and leprosy, God said, you will cleanse them with water and uh, colored twine and a bunch of prayer and stuff. You will purify them by dipping this holy water in hyssop and washing them. Hyssop. And then on the cross, as Jesus is dying, someone holds a stalk of a hyssop plant up to Jesus with, with vinegar on it, wine vinegar on it. And at the end of that, he says, it is, anyone know? Finished. Finished. It is finished. And so there's hyssop all the way through. And I want you to hear how beautiful that makes what happens here in Psalm 51. This is how David writes. So he's just done all that terrible stuff we just heard about. Listen to how he writes. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Do you hear the pleading of his heart? For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're right 
in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Here it comes. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. It's beautiful, isn't it? Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. That's what's on offer tonight. Not condemnation, but free and full forgiveness. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for David. I thank you that you bear all of his life open before us. I pray tonight that we wouldn't be quick to condemn David, but we might be quick to turn to you, to ask your forgiveness, to know it and walk in it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, it's question and answer time. Um, Ali, I think you said you had a question, so you can start. And if there are other questions, I'm really happy to hear them tonight. So go for it. You might have lots of questions. What happened in church tonight? How did I hear all that? You might have a variety of questions. Go for it. Ali, what have you got for us? Um. On face value, I guess it seems quite unfair that that child died. Why, did, why didn't David die? Why did the innocent child die and not at David? First question. Would you care to comment? Number one, breaks my heart. I don't know. And if I could be the writer of the story, I would want that child to be spared the terrible price of David's sin. I don't think there's an easy or useful or helpful answer to that question other than it's the question that hangs over this. But more than that, it's one more to the body count in this story. So, you know, Uriah died, didn't he? Did he do anything wrong? No, he was utterly righteous. On top of that, Joab thought to cover over the sin by not having just Uriah die, so a bunch of other Israelite soldiers are killed at the same time as Uriah is killed. So what's our body count up to there? So it's four or five there. Add this child in, it's an absolute tragedy. And so, Ali, I, I love your question. I, I have this question coming to the text. And the only consolation I have is in, um, in Genesis 18, uh, we read this, these words which Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? It's Abraham talking to God, and all he says is, will not the judge of all the earth do right? I don't understand it, Ali. And the only thing I would say to God is, God, you must have a wisdom greater than me. I submit myself to you, and I put a huge question mark over this. But you, the God of the earth, must do right. It's a great question. Have you got a follow-up? Um, just another one, and it's probably purely speculative. Yeah, sure. Um, so was David's sin then common knowledge after that? So, like, does Bathsheba know that she's married to the man that murdered her husband? Yeah, I, I think the answer to this has to be yes. I'll tell you why. I, the, the affair, definitely, definitely. Does she know for sure that David arranged for her husband to die? I'm not 100% convinced, but an unusual incident happens on the battlefield 
that leads to her husband's death. He's numbered among the mighty men. He's a pretty good soldier. So for him to die, everybody, it actually says in the narrative, if you read it, it says, um, David would ask, hey, why did you go so near to the wall? Doesn't everybody know that you get killed if you go close to the wall? And for a mighty man to die close to the wall is kind of, it's a massive what went on here. And I suspect that she would have had a decent reason to question what had happened to her husband. Does she know specifically? Don't know. But I think she figures something unusual took place. And I think, look, yeah, no, I I couldn't go further than that. But yeah, I, I think she'd have reason to be suspicious. But I guess then she had no, like, being a woman with no, if her husband's dead, she really had no option but to marry him. It's impossible for us to configure how powerless Bathsheba is in this equation, which is tragic in every possible way. She's absolutely powerless. So David says, come to my house, I'm going to marry you. It's not, well, let me weigh up the other offers. It's just a done deal. And that's terrible. It's a million miles away from our world, but it's not a million miles away from our world when we see the Harvey Weinsteins of the world use their power appallingly to affect outcomes for their own gratification. That's what's happening here. Yeah, great questions. Thank you. Peter, you had a question? The child was without sin because it died before it sinned, so the Lord took it back. Yeah, uh, I've heard, I hear what you say, Peter, and um, I, I think I submit the death of children to that verse I just read, which is, will not all, the judge of all the earth do right? And the lady's husband died a hero yeah, absolutely. with the other soldiers. A- absolutely. So his his name is on the honours list. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Is there another question? Yeah, Peter, <laughs> okay. How come the devil is not mentioned? Because the devil stood beside David, whispering in his ear. Yeah. Why isn't the devil mentioned in this account? It's really interesting. Uh, he doesn't get a lot of explicit airtime in, in the Bible. Okay. In the Old uh, Testament. Sorry? In the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, yeah, sure. Um, he doesn't get a lot of airtime in the, in the Old Testament accounts. He is at work in a fallen world whispering cheats and lies to the people of God all the time. And whenever we see uh, death and darkness and disaster, we will attribute it to him naturally because he's the father of lies. Does, does he need to be mentioned here? It would be nice if he was because it would help us, but he is there doing exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a question, Stu, or a comment? <laughs> comment. You get to Guernsey later on when um, when uh, the census is taken because the devil uh, activates David to do that. So he's mentioned. Yeah, that's in David's good. life. Yeah. So we do see he does pop up and he is, he is he is mentioned, but in that case it's specific, and in this case it's inferred. But yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, he definitely is around. Um, yeah. Another question. Okay. Oh, Michelle, yeah. Why is she bathing on the roof? Oh, Michelle, that's so troubling. Um, Okay. Look, I've thought about this and I read some stuff on this and uh, there's there's some speculation about um, uh, time of the year. So it's time of spring when kings go off to war 
Um, is it a really hot time, which is the reason David isn't asleep, because it's a, so this, this is all speculation. It's a hot night, he can't sleep. Instead of being in his inner chambers, he's walking on the, he's working, uh, he's walking on the roof. Um, she's not bathing inside because the same reason that David's out. So it's a weather thing. Is she trying to tempt David by... by I, no, I don't think that's at all mentioned in the story. There's nothing that puts Tilt's blame back towards her. And so whatever the reason... No amount of information in the text points us to her being liable for doing that, if that makes sense. So, only speculation, but no blame from the text. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's a good question, though. I love all these thorny details that are in there. Yeah. Anything else? Come find me at dinner. Uh, look, guys, thank you for putting up with me. Um, you can come and tell me, can I have the G-rated version of it for my children next? I- I'm sorry, it is part of our series. Um, next week, we've got even more coming. Um, I really don't know how I'm going to preach next week, so please uh, think carefully with me before next week. Parents, have a read ahead. Okay, very good. Jeff, I'll hand it back to you. <laughs>